Hey, ladies, welcome to Sisterhood. We are in week four and Hebrews four, so that worked out real good this week that we got to do the two fours. But um, before I begin, I need to excuse my really, in a, like, they're not inappropriate in bad way, but there are, this is what you get for props when on your way out the door, the Lord's like, you could do some props. And so you're going to see these come up later. And I just want you to know there wasn't a whole lot of thought that went into these, but I still think that they're going to get the job done. This is a red flag. This is a white flag, okay? That's all you need to know. Pretty basic. This is actually a sock. You're so proud of me. No, they like it already. Okay, that's good. Okay, here we go. Lesson four. Uh, Think back to college or high school or middle school or elementary school when you heard the word oxymoron. Hmm. I actually had to look up the definition. It is a figure of speech that combines two words or concepts with opposite or contradicting meanings um, in order to kind of add a little emphasis to what you're saying. And I knew what like an oxymoron was. I could think of an example, but I couldn't think of what it, what it was, uh, what the definition was. So there it is. And an oxymoron, for example, is awfully good. Bittersweet. Go ahead. Say a few at your table if you can think of them. Back to the school days. Not everybody at once. Good. Same difference. Original copy. Virtual reality. Anyways, I kind of felt like that's what lesson four was when you get the title and it says labor to rest. Doesn't it feel like an oxymoron? Like, okay, we know what labor is. It's work. But yet you're telling us to work to rest? Hmm. We all know work's important. The Bible tells us that in 2 Thessalonians. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. The Bible warns against laziness in Proverbs 24. And then here's the definition of labor that I want you to think about. Labor is defined as an exertion that okays weariness. It can be physical work that leads to fatigue or intellectual exertion that causes us to be weary. Labor work is good except for when it conflicts with grace. And there's a verse that we're all very familiar with in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So when it comes to obtaining our salvation, ladies, our labor is useless. Regardless of how hard we work, regardless of what we do, we're not going to get saved better. We're not going to get saved differently. We have the gift of salvation by grace, not because we did something. However, However, I think sometimes some of us still try to labor to the point of exhaustion because we, th- we think if we do a good work, if we check off a box, if we do this, that, or the other thing, then maybe God will meet that need that we want. Hmm. And we might not even be intentionally trying to do that, but if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes we volunteer our service with our need in mind. Hear me, working in the church is good. Working in and out of the church is good, and we need to do it. We all should be serving somewhere. We know that blessing follows that, but our service should be, here's the key, our service should be a response to God, not a bribe for God. Okay, we have to keep labor in its proper place as a response to God's goodness, never as a currency to purchase a favor. Laboring to rest, ladies. 
We see it in Hebrews. It starts in chapter 3. It goes into chapter 4. This is a really big chunk of scripture. I'm, I'm actually, if I was at home, I would start in chapter 3, verse 7. Because we're here and I'm going to try to condense a little time, I'm going to start in, cha- in chapter 3, verse 16, read all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. I know that's a lot of Bible, but you know what? That's what she signed up for in sisterhood, to study the Bible, right? So grab your coffee and let's have a little story time. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. And who was it who rebelled against God? Even they, though he, they heard his voice, wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpuses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. And even though this rest has been ready since he made the world, we know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest. And that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Wow. That's a lot. You may have noticed that that scripture in the beginning, there's a transition from talking about the Old Testament rest that involved a physical place of the promised land. And then we switched over to the New Testament, the spiritual place of rest. We see that throughout scripture. There's times where there's things in the Old Testament that's called a type or a shadow where it comes to fruition in the New Testament through Christ. Okay, so that's what's happening. We're seeing a picture of the Old Testament Sabbath that's coming to fruition in the New Testament through Christ. Our ultimate rest will happen when we get to heaven, of course, for believers. However, there is a rest that we can experience here on earth. Even if we walk through troubles, even if we walk through trials, even if we have a storm and total chaos around us, we can find rest in the Lord. Okay, I want to hone in on Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. You gotta hang with me a little bit at the beginning here. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. It says God ceased from his works. How did he do this? Okay, when God created the heavens and the earth, he, he, 
he created everything to recreate. So if we go cut down a tree, God's not concerned that he needs to plant another tree because we just cut one down. And if you go eat a hamburger tonight and then you think, oh no, we need to make more cows because now we're almost out of beef. Like, no, God thought about all that. It says when he created the heavens and the earth, he thought about the trees needing seeds to replant. He thought about the animals needing to reproduce. So when it says on, on the seventh day God rested, it's not because he was like, oh my goodness, I worked so hard for six days. I can't wait to get to the seventh day and have a little bit of me time. That's not what he's talking about. It says he ceased from his work because you want to know why? It was complete. It was finished. It was done. I'm not an artist, but I have to imagine if I was painting a canvas right here and you're working on your piece of your masterpiece and there has to be a point where you step back and you look at that piece of art and you think, I don't need to add anything else. It's complete. It's finished. It's done. Okay, so that's the kind of ceasing from work that we're talking about. The Old Testament Sabbath day was, a, was an example of that same principle. The Sabbath day was a day of rest. The Jewish nation was to cease from working on this day and spend the day to worship the Lord. Practically, that wouldn't have seemed wise, right? It seems like, but if I work seven days, surely I'll get more done than if I work in six days. But listen, if they obeyed, and they did, they actually prospered more than if they would have worked seven days. They prospered more working in six days than they did in seven. Chick-fil-A, right? Closed on Sundays. (laughs) In addition to the Sabbath day, in Leviticus 25, we see God also instituted the Sabbath year. So we have the Sabbath day because he was done. Everything was finished. Now we have the Sabbath year in Leviticus 25. The Lord spoke to Moses. When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall never sow your field, nor prune your vineyard. What grows on its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And if you say... What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessings on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. Okay, even though the people rested, they had everything they needed. Why? Because God was their source. He saw to it that they were provided for and that they were blessed. The Old Testament Sabbath was not the real rest. It was a type and a shadow. Okay, God used the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year to illustrate for us how to rest in the Lord. He used a practical example of sowing and reaping working and eating to show us that he is our source and our supply. He's the provider of every need. Okay, so the Sabbath pictures our rest. We enter into the rest of God. We cease from working. 
and we trust the provision of God. We realize we can't add anything else to what Christ has already done for us. And we rest in the finished work without adding any work of our own. Isn't that cool? Okay, but the problem is that's not the natural mindset for us. Most of us are human doers instead of human beings. And the writer of Hebrews knew that. So that's why he instructs us. He says you have to be diligent to enter that rest, to enter that place where you cease to not strive anymore, where you receive his completeness and his finished work. Look again, uh, I'm going to read King James Version for Hebrews 4.11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Okay, so the labor in the Greek right there is spudazo. It means to make effort, to be prompt, to do diligence, to study. That is not the same Greek word that we see in Ephesians 2 when it says to do works. The works in the Greek is ergon. That means to toil, an act of doing, an act of laboring. So the labor that we employ when it says we labor to rest, ladies, that labor means we enter the rest of God in diligence. Not, we don't have to toil. We're not exhausting ourselves, but we are making an effort to get to that place of rest that we're talking about. In the Amplified, it says it this way. Let us therefore be zealous and exert ourselves and strive diligently to enter the rest of God to know and experience for ourselves. Okay, this sounds silly to even say out loud, but entering and remaining in God's rest might be one of the hardest things that you ever do. It may. I don't know about you, but it's a constant daily struggle for me to get my mind off the things of this world, to get my mind off the chaos around me, to get my mind off the trials that come, to get my mind off the lies that try to sink in and to labor, to be in his rest. And the sad part is some of us are never going to get there. Some of us can't quit trusting in ourselves Some of us can't get past the idea that we can't help God save and provide. Some of us can't get past the point that there's nothing we can do to earn this rest. And we're striving and exhausting ourselves. Rest is a place of victory. And the devil's not going to want us there, right? He never wants us in a place of victory, but the devil's dumb. He has no new tricks, and he's the father of lies. So the only thing he can do to you is he can try to trip you up with lies. He won't be successful, but he can try to make you think that. Okay, and we've talked about this many times before. If the lies is the weapon, then the battlefield is our mind. And we've talked in sisterhood before about not trusting our five senses. I think Kristen maybe even said it this way one time to just cut your head off, right? You can't focus on the trials. You can't focus on the sickness. We can't focus on the untrue thoughts. If we do that, if we focus on those things, we are going to be uptight and we're going to be anxious and we have every reason to be outside of God's rest. Here's what we've been taught. We've been taught to check all of our senses. We've been taught to check how our body feels. We've been taught to check our surroundings. And if everything checks out okay here, and if everything checks out okay here, and if everything checks out okay here, we can rest. But if everything doesn't check out here, we throw up the red flag. 
And we panic, and we worry, and we doubt. Do you know what the red flag means when you go to the ocean? Danger, danger, don't go in there. That's not a safe place. The undercurrent could sweep you away. Don't go in there. Don't go in there. Don't go to that place of those lies. Don't let him tempt you with that stuff. But then when the ocean switches to the white flag... It's peaceful. It's safe. You can enter. The white flag is also the color of surrender. So we surrender our feelings and we pick up his promises. We take our eyes off self and we look to him. We take our thoughts captive and we make them his. And we wave our flag of surrender and we say, Lord, we trust. We trust you. We trust your ways are better than our ways. Lord, we believe you. We believe you. Even though there's stuff happening around here, Lord, I fix my eyes on you. Even though this is crumbling, I fix my eyes on you. Even though my marriage is falling apart, Lord, I trust you. You're never going to leave me or forsake me. Even though my child's sick, Lord, I know what your word says. By her, by your stripes, she is here healed, okay? So we pick up our white flag and we surrender our own selfish things to Christ and we walk and we go and surrender and that's how we enter rest. Unbelief keeps us from rest. Belief helps us enter into rest. And we go to his word and we find promises in his word that fits our situation. And we look at that promise until we believe it and we read it and we read it and we read it and we keep it before our eyes and we keep it in our ears and we allow it to sink deep into our hearts. And we decide that we're not going to consider any other report than what his promise says, than what his word says. No matter what, I'm going to believe him. I'm going to believe him. And since his word is alive and active, it's going to begin to change you as you focus on it. It will. And as it begins to take over your body, you'll begin to notice that fear is gone. The situation hasn't changed. It still looks really scary all around you. But in the place where fear once was, there's peace and there's joy and there's rest. The other day, my daughter called home and she's currently living in Saudi Arabia. I'm so excited for her. In the last two years, she's been battling these really icky seizures that are terrible. I hate everything about them. And she called home and I could tell in her voice, she'd had a seizure. You know what her first words were to me? Mom, I have peace. Mom, I have peace. Don't worry about me. I know whose I am. I know who I am. I know my identity's not in this sickness. I know he will never leave me or forsake me. 
I know my God shall supply all of my needs. And she began to encourage me and to build my faith because my mama's heart wanted to just let fear and worry and gross stuff just start to take over. But no. Right? Surrender my feelings, how I want to feel. And I look to him. We had some friends that just received news and they got the report from a doctor that they had stage four cancer all over in his body. And they said, as we sat in that room, here's what happened. Worry, fear. What can we do? What should we do? Oh my goodness, panic. And they said they sat there for a little bit. They know better. This is what happens if we're not constantly checking what the enemy's trying to do to us. And they're like, no. And they put it down and they grabbed this one instead. And they started speaking out loud, Lord, we trust you. You work all things for your good. You restore my health. We do not focus on the things seen, but on the things unseen. I was talking with some other friends recently that are missionaries that serve overseas and their bank account did not look good. In fact, any way they did the math, there's no way they should have been paying the bills. And so what happens? Fear, lack, doubt. No, put them down. Return to rest. My God shall supply all my needs. He's not a God of lack. Be anxious for nothing. And we return to that place of rest. Okay? This is dangerous. Don't go. Don't go in here. Don't let your mind get filled. Don't let your mind get filled with the, li- with the lies. Stay in the place of rest. Surrender those thoughts to Christ. Can I just share a few Bible characters that I really like that I think will encourage you? And they'll model what it looked like to exchange the red flag for the white flag. We have David. There was a time in David's life when Absalom, his son, had taken over the kingdom. And he knew that he was outnumbered. And wherever he ran, he felt like he should be watching because he could be ambushed at any time. And yet in the midst of that, here's what David writes in Psalm 4.8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, David knew the source of his safety. He knew that because he knew God, he knew he could actually dwell there. That word dwell right there, that speaks of living or abiding in safety. David knew he wasn't just visiting safety. He wasn't just going in and out of safety. He knew he could live there. And because he lived there, he could lie down in peace and sleep. He had every reason to let fear rise up within him. Another example in Mark 4, 35 through 41. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, but he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, 
who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, I want you to get a mental picture of what's happening here. There's fierce wind. There's waves beating against the boat. The water's filling the boat. These seasoned fishermen are terrified, and they have a sleeping, peaceful Jesus in the boat. Terrified. They thought for sure they were dying. They for sure were. And they start panicking. And they turn to Jesus and they scold him for not helping and not caring. Why aren't you helping us? Do you not care? Can you not see that I need some help? And the disciples are wondering why Jesus is so concerned. And Jesus is wondering why they're so concerned. And isn't that the same for us? When something comes up, we start panicking. And if we don't see him helping us immediately, we're like, can you not see us? Can you not see us? We're right here. And Jesus would have the same response to you. Why are you so concerned? Do you not believe me? Do you not trust me? Okay, look at how that story began in Mark 4. Jesus said, Jesus and the disciples, they get into the boat and he says to them, let us cross over to the other side. That right there was the plan. They were crossing to the other side. That was enough information right there to tell the disciples that this storm wasn't going to end their lives because they had a God-given destination, the other side. And we have a destination too. God said, you have abundant life. Jesus said, we have healing by his stripes. Jesus said, we could move mountains. If that's not your experience right now, if you're in the midst of a storm and you haven't reached your destination, then your journey isn't over yet. Because you're going to the other side. Okay, stick with me. Still on this story, let's contrast the reaction of the disciples in the storm to that of Jesus. He experienced the same storm, the same winds, the same waves, yet he's sleeping. His five senses knew there was a storm. Okay, we don't have to ignore storms. We can know they're happening. We just can't focus on them. We move them to the peripheral. So his ears heard the storm. His skin felt the rain. And yet they didn't bother his soul with the news that there was danger because it was as if Jesus had trained his senses to not disturb him. There's a training that happens. There's a practice that happens. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says this, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to eat milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Okay, so fear is evil and contrary to the divine law. Uh, uh, the divine law. And Jesus' senses has been trained to ignore it. That's why he could sleep through the storm. His soul's at peace. He was in a perpetual state of rest. He knew that things were happening around, but his soul was focused on the destination. His mind knew he was in a boat. His mind knew he was in the sea for a reason because he was going to get to the other side. He was just crossing over. One more quick example. That same Peter that was in the boat who panicked and frantically got afraid, 
He grew in the Lord, as it says in Hebrews. He matured. He traded milk for solid food, and he learned from Jesus' example. Because later in Acts 12, we see that Herod was persecuting the church. He had already killed James, and he saw that pleased the Jews. So then he arrested Peter, and he planned to kill him too. And he puts him in prison, and he puts four squads around him, which means there'd be 16 guards around Peter, around, yeah, and around his cell. And Peter's there. I would call that a storm. I don't know. I don't want to be in a prison cell with 16 guards probably waiting to die. And then this is what happens in Acts 12, 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So in the midst of the storm, we see Peter sleeping. When before he had panicked... What made the difference? He trained his senses. Okay, in the first storm, do you remember the story ended by saying the disciples feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Guess what? Peter had figured out the answer to that question. Who can this be? The one the sea and the wind obeyed. It was Christ the son of the living God. And if Peter was to die for himself, as James had, he was dying for the son of the living God, the savior of the world. And if it was not his time to die, God was able to deliver him. Think of that. Who is this man? He's the son of the living God the Savior of the world. That's who you get your promises from. David, Jesus, Peter, they they had to learn to remain in peace, even to the point of sleeping. We too, we're going to train our senses that he's our source, that he's our supply, that there's nothing we can add to his promises. They're complete. We need only only believe. Belief in the promised outcome equals patience to wait, and waiting with patience is peace. Belief in the promised outcome equals patience to wait, and waiting with patience is peace. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Okay, this passage doesn't just make us feel better. It gives us instructions. Come to me. Give him your yoke. Take up his instead. We are to learn from him and allow his gentle heart to give ours rest. We focus on the word until it seeps deep into our hearts. We pray even when we don't see things so that our eyes believe in a God we can't see and our ears trust in something that we haven't heard yet. And another thing we can do is fast so that we're telling our bodies basically to be quiet and we train our senses to trust the living God 
the Savior of the world, who promised us rest, who said it is complete, it is finished, it is done. There's nothing you have to do to add to it. We just labor to rest in those promises. So, Lord, I pray right now that we would labor to rest in your promises, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that you are indeed the Son of Man, the Savior of the world, Messiah. I thank you, Lord, that you came and rose again so that we can rest in the finished work of the cross. And, Lord, I just pray for people right now that feel like they are in the midst of the storm. That it looks like chaos all around them, Lord. Show them what they need to surrender. And show them how to pick up your promises and read them over and over and over and over again until they believe them to be true. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.